but we come as always to really the most important part of our time together is to open the word of God together and to look into it together. So let's just pause for a moment and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we come uh, before you and Lord, we are, we are thankful. We are thankful for uh, the activity uh, that's been expressed here through business meeting. There, there are things going on. That means there's life here, and that's, that's something to be thankful for. And we are, we are thankful, Father, for what has transpired this weekend. Uh, there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of words and a lot of emotion that's spinning around us and in us and and so when we come to uh, this passage today it it seems kind of routine it it seems kind of just just like a a narrative that we are familiar with yet this is your holy word and your your scripture tells us that every bit of the word of god is inspired and is profitable to equip us to be the men and women of God that you've called us to be. So we know there's, there's something here for us exactly where you have us today. And so we just pray that you would speak to us, Father, loudly and clearly beyond my voice, beyond my words, that your Holy Spirit would take your word and do a tremendous work in each and every heart that's gathered, including my own, that, Lord, you would further root us in the faith, that you would deepen our affections for Christ in the gospel, and that, Father, if there be some who have gathered with us who are apart from Christ, that they would see the beauty and the glory of the gospel today in a, in a clear and compelling way, and that today would be the day of life and salvation. We ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. Sentencing the innocent one. So we stated last week that these uh, snapshot scenes of chapter 26, they really move at a rapid place, uh, pace from place to place. So just last week, the last passage, we were in Gethsemane. Now we are in the court of the high priest Jesus is surrounded by priests and scribes and elders. The disciples have left him. It's just him now surrounded by the enemy. Peter, he's keeping a watch from a, from a safe distance. So we've moved from garden to courtroom, from disciples to accusers, from prayer to the Father to condemnation by the council. So the scene and, and the scenery here have changed dramatically. There is only one true innocent man who has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve sinned, and all who come from them and all who have come after them inherited their fallen nature. And therefore, as David says in Psalm 51, we, we are all born sinners, we, we come packaged 
that way. It's in our DNA to rebel against God. And, and soon after we are born, as soon as we can learn to express our personalities, our inclinations, we, we flex our fallen muscles against the will of God. We sin as soon as we are able There's not a single human being who has ever existed that is truly innocent in that sense of being sinless except for the Son of God who was born the Son of Man. He never departed from the Father's will in word, in action, in thought, or even intention or motivation. He lived an absolutely perfect life. He fulfilled the law's requirements and was in every single way morally perfect and pure. He was without stain of sin or mark of corruption, the blameless, spotless Lamb of God. So the task before the council of Pharisees and Sadducees is not an easy one. How do you condemn an innocent man? And he's not only innocent of a specific crime, he's innocent of every crime. He's sinless. So how do you fabricate a situation where he's not only condemned in your court, but also in the court of public opinion as well? How do you convince the secular authorities who hold the power of execution to execute a just and innocent man? When we find Jesus standing before Caiaphas and the, and the council, that is the task before them, to sentence the innocent one, condemning to death the only one who ever lived who did not deserve it. The only one, because the Bible tells us, right, the wages of sin is death. Jesus is the only one who lives sinless. He's the only one who did not deserve death. How do you condemn to death the only one who ever lived and did not deserve death? Well, here's how you do it. We'll see, we'll walk through this passage and see kind of the process of uh, the high priest and the council here and as we do this by the way it just so happens God's God's timing is all always right correct it's always it's always right so we can look back over the events of this weekend and even see how the kind of the theme of the text and the points of the text uh, play out so number one you have to present the untrue as truth You have to present the untrue as truth. And that's how this all begins with the Jesus standing here in the council, doesn't it? You have to begin with a lie. That's where you have to start. Now, this is nothing new. That was Satan's tactic in the Garden of Eden. And he's working the same scheme behind the scenes here in this courtroom you have to tell a lie and then you have to convince others that what is untrue is actually true now it takes a bit of work to present the untrue is true that's 
that's not an easy task. Uh, you have to work hard at it. And, and so here's some, here's some things that you have to do. First, you, you have to give the appearance of having the moral high ground. It has to seem like you have the moral standing. That you have to suggest that there, you have a sense of moral superiority. So, how do you do that here? Well, you bring Jesus before the high priest. Now, that's the guy that has the moral high ground in this context. That's the symbol, that's the emblem of moral superiority. This is the high priest. Well, then you have to make the appearance of moral authority and power. You, you have to show that in some way you have a right to make this moral claim. And, and that this moral claim, you have such authority and power, such moral authority and power, that, that when you make, you have the right to make this moral claim, but it's then not to be questioned. So how do you do that here? Well, Jesus is brought into the courtroom of the council. So Jesus is surrounded by the religious elite. They, they're all clothed in their religious garments. They have all of their accolades. They have all of their certifications. They have all of their, all of their degrees all of their experience, and they're all exuding this air, right, that they are the ones. This is the room of people who keep the law. Therefore, if you're coming in here for us to question, that means you haven't been keeping it. So you have to exude this sense of moral authority and power. But at some point, you have to do what you've gathered to do. At some point, you have to tell a lie. And so what happens here, we, we see the Bible says, Matthew says, many false witnesses were brought forth to tell some deed or some word from Jesus that transgressed the law. Now you have to understand from their position, being absolutely deceived, they don't, they don't say, let's go get a lie. What they're saying is, let's trap Jesus in something that he's done wrong. Because they're convinced he's wrong. But it can't just be any transgression of the law. It has to be a transgression that's worthy of death. Now here's where the wrongdoing is. They're trying their best to kill an innocent man. It has to be a transgression that, that, that crosses the line. So try as they might, though. The, Matthew says they bring in many false witnesses. Try as they might. Nothing would stick. Not, nothing would, would reach the level of, of a call for execution. So what do they do? What do you do? Well, you got to keep trying, right? You got to keep trying. You got to keep bringing false witnesses. Matthew says, at last. Meaning, this has been going on for a while. There have been many false witnesses that have been brought forward. So at last, finally... Finally, two came forward with this claim, and it was so preposterous, this claim that, of, 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 of a quote from Jesus, that, that if you make this statement, you either have to be insane to really believe this, or you have to believe that you are God. 
So finally, at last, they, they find something to fit their scheme. And what is it? Well, the Scripture says here, there in verse 61, that these two witnesses claim to hear Jesus say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So here's another step in presenting the untrue as true. You have to have or present moral superiority, moral authority, and power. But you have to mix in a little truth to make the untruth believable. You have to mix in a little truth to make the untruth palatable, believable. Because this is actually not accurately what Jesus said or even what he meant. In essence, you you have to lie about your lie. And that's what these two witnesses are doing. So let's look at John chapter 2 and see the context of where this statement comes from. Because Jesus did say something like it. John chapter 2 and verses 18 through 22. And so the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. I notice he didn't say he was going to destroy it. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. Now, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In other words, Jesus was saying there at the temple, there's a a greater temple here. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there was the purpose behind Jesus' words and his intention and what he meant and what he actually said. And it doesn't match up with what he's been accused here of in Matthew 26. You see, they didn't get it when Jesus first spoke it and they don't get it now in its twisted version. But you have to ask yourself the question, right? Somebody comes into a courtroom and says, oh, I've, I've got a charge against this man, and they level this charge. I'm able to destroy the temple of God and, and to rebuild it in three days. And, and then you have to ask the question, so what's the big deal here? I mean, we've just got somebody saying something silly, Why did this accusation stick when the others failed? And it was because if Jesus claims to do in three days what took hundreds to do in 46 years, then he is claiming supernatural power. He is claiming deity. He's claiming to do what only God can do. And that's why you see the response in verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? That's why he's saying that. 
Because the implication is, are you actually claiming to be God? But in verse 63, the Bible says Jesus remained silent. He, he didn't make an answer. He didn't try to clear his name. He didn't try to vindicate himself. He didn't try to explain himself. He didn't try to point out he had been misquoted. He didn't answer a word. You see, he didn't need to. Because his whole life had given testimony to who he was. He didn't have to tear down the temple building and rebuild it in three days to show that he was claiming to be God. His whole ministry was a claim to be God and a proof and evidence of it. Everything he said and did was divine and miraculous. And furthermore, the scripture had prophesied that silence would be his response in the face of false accusations. So just let me read to you Isaiah 53, 7. Isaiah 53, by the way, is the great Old Testament passage of the sacrifice, suffering, and death of Christ for the people of God. And in Isaiah 53, 7... The prophecy says this, Isaiah the prophet said, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You see, the father knew Christ was innocent. And that's the only thing that really matters. There was no compulsion to try to vindicate himself. This was the Father's will, and the Father knew he was innocent. They were simply, in their minds, they were coming up with a scheme. They were plotting a way to, to, to label this man so that he would be executed. They didn't know that they were falling right in line with the father's plan. There was no need to say anything. They were trying their best to come up with some kind of, some kind of sentence, some, some kind of accusation, some kind of proof that he was guilty so that they could condemn him to death. And he was, he was there to do exactly that. He, he wasn't going to fight against it. He came to die. They were the ones wringing their hands, not Christ. By the way, just to point out, he could have performed this feat, right? Even though they've misquoted him. He could have performed this feat. He could have torn the temple down and built it in three days, just like he could have turned the stones into bread in the wilderness when he was starving after 40 days of fasting. Why didn't he do that? It wasn't the Father's will. Remember, this is the perfect, sinless, obedient, righteous Spotless Lamb of God. So the first thing you have to do is present the untrue as truth. The second thing you have to do in verses 63 through 65 is, is you have to present the truth as untrue. 
So the high priest is outraged, right, that Jesus won't answer. He won't speak. You see, he's got to get him to say something. He's got to get his words on record. He's got to get him on record of saying something that he can condemn him with his own words. So he makes the highest plea he can possibly make. I adjure you, he says, by the living God, please say something that we can trap you with. Remember, he's talking to the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, he says. Remember, this is Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16. This is the profession, the confession of faith of the the history of the church for those who are truly in Christ. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ turned to Peter and said, On this rock I will build my church. Everything about the church of God is on this bedrock confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have to believe this in order to be saved. So the high priest, see how cunning evil is, how wicked Satan becomes. The, The high priest takes the only true saving confession and uses it as a trap to condemn the only true Savior. And so Jesus now speaks because the high priest has called on God to speak. And he speaks the truth in verse 64, doesn't he? Jesus said to him, you have said so. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have just spoken for yourself. Out of your mouth has come the greatest truth of all truths. If you will take that if away, you go from doubt and and dismay and rejection to confession, from unbelief to belief, from death to life. If you remove that if, and if you say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you are transformed and renewed. Jesus said, you, see, you said so. And then he says a statement directed to the high priest by implication to the world. And Jesus is simply saying, you will see me again. I, I, you, you have plans to kill me and put me in the, in the ground, in the grave. But you will see me again and I won't be hanging on a cross. I'll be seated on a throne And that throne is much higher than yours. That's what he means. He's talking to the high priest. From now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. So Jesus is clearly saying, I am the Son of God. But when you see me again, I won't be coming to save. He's doing that now. He's doing that by the process that they don't even realize. He's coming to save now by his death. But when he returns, seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, he will be coming to judge. Now, every single word Jesus has just spoken in verse 64, every single word is absolutely true. It will not change. And it will happen exactly just as Jesus has said it will happen. When he returns. 
But if you're going to condemn the only innocent one who has ever lived, you have to take the truth and present it as untrue. You have to take the beauty and love of the truth and you have to present it as an ugly, hate-filled lie. And so if you're in a religious context like this one and you're suggesting some kind of moral superiority and authority, the word blasphemous, that'll do. And so the, the high priest in, in, this, in this stand of, of, of utter dismay and shock tears his robes and says, He has uttered blasphemy. What, what further witness do? We don't have to do the charade any longer. He just stepped into the trap. He just said what I wanted him to say. He just said he was the son of God. Here's a room filled with people who were to be the keepers of the holy, sacred Scripture. They were to be the ones who were awaiting for the Messiah and would recognize when he would arrive. They had studied and memorized the law more than any. And yet here they are convinced they are doing the Lord's work. They are convinced that they are on, you've heard this term, right side of history. They are convinced they are on the right side of history. And they couldn't be more wrong. And the best thing they could do, moving forward, doing the very best thing that they could do in their power, the very best work these religious elites could do was to condemn the innocent one. This is kind of basically really the only council decision we know, we, we know about in Scripture. This is what they're known for. So just like the best, the best, thing, the best thing Adam could possibly do as Adam is bite the apple. Bite the forbidden fruit. So just like the council, just like Adam, all of us, listen, our best, the very best, falls short of the glory of God every single time. And so finally you come to the point in the narrative and in the process of sentencing the innocent one, you present... The untruth is truth. You present the truth as untrue. And so finally now you can present the innocent as guilty. This is the last step in this condemning of the innocent one. But not just to be guilty, right? But to be deserving of death. Verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And look what happens next. Now that they've justified their evil intention, now they've made legitimate their, their, their outrage and their, and their hatred. Now that they have a sentence, now that they have a, a statement of, of blasphemous guilt and, and now a sentence, now they can release their fury, and they do. They've been holding it back this whole time. But now they have, they've legitimized their anger and rejection of Christ, and they go at him. 
Imagine Christ the Savior sitting surrounded by these wolves, just tearing at the, at the bits, just waiting for the chance to pounce, just spitting. And, and, and they spit upon the Savior's face in, in a show of ultimate disrespect. And, and they strike and slap the face of the only face who held the gaze of grace. And the words of life, they strike and slap him to demean him, to disrespect him. And then they begin to mock the giver of all good things. They, they begin to mock him, to humiliate him. And why wouldn't they do all of these things? He, he deserves this outburst, right? He's guilty. He deserves death. Now, I want you to do something as we come to a close of our study today. We've basically just been walking through the narrative, and so now we're going to make some points of application. If you have your Bible open in print form or in digital form, if you would look there in verses 67 and 68, I want you to just take a very careful look. I want us to do kind of an exercise together. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Take a close look at those actions. And now I want you just to stop and think and take a close look at the history of your life. At the history of my life. And I want us to realize every time we rejected God's will, every time we crossed His word, every time we transgressed His way, every time we rebelled against His authority, every time we went our own way in defiance of our Creator. Every time we claimed the moral high ground to know better or to need more than God has said or God has provided, than to humbly and gratefully bow to the Lord, the sovereign Lord of all. Every time we've done that in our lives, every time we've sinned, we spit in his face. We said, You're not Lord. You're not sufficient. You're not God of my life. We struck his cheek. We mocked his glory. While all the while we were sinning, all the while we were rebelling against God, all the while we are enemies of God, all of that while it's him who's giving us life and breath to be spitting in his face and mocking his glory. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what's going on here, pastor? You read through this passage and you understand there is nothing right about this trial. 
There's nothing fair about this trial. There's nothing just about this trial. There's nothing true in these claims about this trial. Why is this happening? I mean, this makes the concept of someone scream in the concept of, of justice. Why is this happening? Because, you see, it's the gospel. The innocent one is declared guilty so that the guilty ones may be declared innocent. It's the gospel. It's the process by which the gospel took effect. That the sinless one would take on the sin of the world and be condemned and executed and and suffer and sacrifice his life. So that we who believe and trust in him who make that confession, not with an if in front of it, but with all of our heart. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are all I will ever need. That those individuals who are guilty as the day is long, might be declared justified before God because our sin has already been paid. Dear friend, if you have never loved Jesus, you should love him now. He took our place so that if we would embrace and follow him, he might take us to his place. It's the gospel, the innocent for the guilty. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to see this. Lord, it, it tears at our hearts. Those of us who know the Savior and love him, it's heart-wrenching to see this, to step into this courtroom and see the sinless Savior who gave his life for us to be treated this way, to be put into a scenario in which the whole point of it is to mock him and chastise him and afflict him and oppress him. To see the the sinless Savior treated this way. But yet, Father, we know the purpose of it, and that purpose is the most glorious, gracious, sweetest thing we've ever known. Is it the Son of God stepped out of heaven into this world, wrapped himself in our flesh, lived a perfect life, and died for our sin that in him we might have life and salvation. The most ungracious scene is filled with grace. So, Father, as believers... May we rejoice in our Savior. May we follow his footsteps. And if we are apart from Christ today, may we run to Christ. Just having a glimpse of of part, just part of what he undertook that he might rescue us from ourselves. Might rescue us from, from our inclination and bent against the sovereignty and salvation of the Lord. And seeing that merciful, gracious, sovereign Lord of all step into this role of suffering, sacrificial servant, may the love of God compel us to Christ today. 
May we give it all to him because he gave it all for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.